I love those pictures that they come up with each week, huh? It's pretty good stuff. I don't come up with it. That's why I can admire it. (laughs) Open your Bibles up to Matthew 13. We are continuing our study here of the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. And uh, as we look at these parables, it's important to remember, I think, that, that Jesus uses the common events of life to teach what he wants to teach here in terms of spiritual truths about his kingdom. And uh, for, for us, there's a, there's a gap we have to bridge. We, we don't live in that day and age. We are not an agrarian society anymore, although there are certainly parts of our country where farming is, is a more uh, part of their tradition than it is for us. We're, you know, we are the uh, suburban dwellers, right? We live in, in homes with uh, little teeny lots surrounded by fences and and uh, we get our food by going to the grocery store and uh, selecting from an abundance of options and choices and so forth. So we have very little first-hand knowledge of um, what, it was, what it is like uh, to live off the land and, and then beyond that to what it was like to live off the land in the first century. So we have to take the time to try to get back into that a little bit and understand it. But I think it's important as we go through these to remember that all of these parables, all of these stories that Jesus tells here would have been very, very common uh, knowledge to, to those who listened. And so when he finishes telling a parable and, and then says, you know, he who has ears to hear, listen, I can just imagine that the, the basic response of the audience would have been, What? I mean, you've just told us what we already know. We, we know all about planting and sowing and farming and so forth. You have told us nothing that we do not already know. In fact, nothing that we have not commonly experienced. And so you, can, you could sort of see how it would be just completely opaque to them. They wouldn't get it. Even the disciples don't get it until they come to him and receive the, the private interpretation that he gives them. So these are, these are familiar stories that Jesus gives in order to illustrate truth. Truth that is critical for his disciples. These were given primarily so these disciples would understand that, that times were a-changing. That the, that the messianic uh, freight train that, that appears to be growing and gathering steam and, and popularity and so forth is actually very hollow, and is soon to crumble. And that, and that in a not very much longer period of time, these same adoring crowds are going to be crying for his crucifixion. And that was very, very hard for the, for the disciples to even conceive of. So Jesus speaks to him in these parables, speaks to them, in order to, to prepare them for the inevitable collapse of their messianic hope. Now, last week, we looked at the first of the eight parables that Matthew records here, and we looked at the parable 
of the soils, the parable of the soils. And in this parable, the, uh, the seed that is, that is sown is, we are told, the word of the kingdom. That is, the, the word about the kingdom. And uh, that Jesus is the king and, and that the entrance into his kingdom is an entrance that comes through repentance. It is a physical kingdom entered through a spiritual door, the door of repentance and the new birth. And it is the soil that is different, not the seed that is sown. And the, and the different soils have differing levels of receptivity to that seed. And although some of those soils appear to receive the seed very readily, the reality of the matter is that it, they, it will not find good, solid root there, and it will wither and die. But there is some soil, some soil in which the, the seed will fall and it will find uh, a deep root, and it will begin to, to pour forth fruit, an abundance of a crop, 30 Sixty, a hundredfold, Jesus says. And so there's an optimism, even in the, even in the face of, of the hard-packed soil and the stony soil and the, and the thorn-infested soil, there's still the hope, there is still the optimism that there will be a great harvest to come. But what we have before us this morning as we take up the parable of the wheat and the tares is that Jesus is going to inform them that that the, that the problem of the soil is not the only problem they're going to face. It's not the only obstacle to the message of the kingdom. After they plant, in this next parable, sinister forces will actively seek to corrupt the good seed that has been sown in that soil. Really what Jesus is going to, to do this morning is... is kind of present two sides of the impending collapse of his messianic mission. The parable of the soils speaks about the collapse from a human point of view. It's going to fall apart. They're not going to receive their king. His popularity is not just going to wane, but is going to collapse. And the reason that's going to happen is the hardness of the human heart. The wickedness of the human heart. That is that the soil is bad. But this morning he's going, to, he's going to kind of flip it and he's going to deal with the other side. He's going to deal with the supernatural reasons for the collapse. He's going to, he's going to talk about an evil sower. A supernatural being who is active and seeking to, to subvert the good seed that has been sown. So as we take a look this morning, and we're picking it up here with verse 24, as we take a look, we're going to examine this parable together and its divine explanation. And from that, we're going to draw some important lessons regarding Christian ministry in the 21st century. I want to understand this in the, in the, in the, um, in the realm in which it was given and for the purpose for which it was given, and we'll do that. But we're going to go beyond that. We're going to draw from that some principles, I think, that apply to to ministry that we find ourselves in here in the 21st century. So I don't want to just leave it in its historical context. Okay? So that's kind of the approach. So let's begin here in verse 24 with the actual parable itself. 
Verse 24, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to, or the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now, I think it's important here to to just uh, say this, that when Jesus gives the comparison, and, and he's going to do that now repeatedly in the parables that follow, we need to understand what it is that he is comparing as we approach the parable to interpret it. So it's not that the kingdom of heaven is like the man. That's not the comparison that he is drawing. What he is drawing here is that the the kingdom of heaven is like this scenario in which a man goes out and sows seed and so forth. So it's the the entire scenario that he presents here in the story. It's the the entire story that that illustrates something about this kingdom of heaven. Okay? Now, let's, uh, let's lay a little agricultural background for the non-farmer types among us, right? So let's, let's talk about uh, grain crops. Grain crops are important in every society and every place in the world. We, we live off of the grain crops, okay? We supplement them in many ways, but, but we are dependent upon various green crops to provide the the carbohydrates, the starches that we need for life. And Israel is no different. And so there are, uh, or were in Israel in that day, there were two basic green crops that the people depended upon. Wheat and barley. The wheat and the barley crop provided the bread of life. Now wheat grows very well. It did then. It continues to do so upon what's called the, the uh, coastal plain. That's the portion of Israel that, is, uh, that butts up to the Mediterranean Sea. It's a fertile area, potentially, at least, if it receives enough water. And so there are, there are uh, you can see it today as you drive through the country, the, there, it is productive. There are crops that grow in that area. The other productive areas in the nation would have been the the Jordan uh, River Valley Rift. So the place where the Jordan River flows from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. It's a a major rift. In fact, it's uh, it's the deepest rift on the face of the planet. And there along the banks of that river, it's fertile. And so they would have grown wheat crops there. But the big breadbasket of the nation is found in what's called the Jezreel Valley, which is in the north. It's an arrowhead-shaped valley. It's about 20 miles on each of the sides of the arrowhead, and it is exceedingly productive, an exceedingly productive valley. And that is where the majority of the wheat would grow. Barley, on the other hand, is grown in the poorer soil. And, it, and, it, and one of the reasons, it, it has a shorter growing season, and so it, it grows more quickly than wheat, and it grows in poorer quality soil than wheat, and so barley was generally the food of the poor. It would have been the grain that the poor would rely on. Wheat was more the grain for the, those that had a little more wealth. And in the story here, of course, we have a wheat field in which there is a landowner who has servants who are able to plant his field and to, and to cultivate his field and to reap his field. And so it's not like he's out here doing the backbreaking labor himself. He, he has servants doing it for him. 
Wheat seeds are planted in the, in the October, November time period after the early rains. Talked about that last week as the soil becomes moist and, and, uh, and able to be cultivated. And so there, the seed is planted at that time. And then the harvest itself is somewhere in the April to June time frame, depending on altitude, weather conditions, so forth. So that's the basics of growing wheat in the nation of Israel, and it forms the basis of this parable. But there is another aspect to the parable that's inserted here that we need to understand as well, and that is what the New American Standard uh, calls tares, T-A-R-E-S. Some translations uh, would uh, translate this weeds, and uh, actually that's... um, That would be technically correct. That would be what the Greek word means is weeds. But we believe that it's a certain kind of weed, a weed called a tear. A tear, uh, uh, also known as darnel, D-A-R-N-E-L. And darnel is a a particular kind of, of grass plant that grows in the same areas and under the same conditions as wheat, and when it, when it grows, it looks like wheat. And, it, and as it springs up and as, it, and as the stalks grow, it looks like wheat. And in fact, you can't tell the difference between it and wheat until it arrives at the fruiting stage of the plant when it actually the, the seeds begin to form. The darnel seeds are smaller than the wheat kernel, the wheat seed. And when it gets to the harvest point, the wheat is brown and the darnel is black. But for a long time, the two can grow side by side and you can't tell them apart. The problem is that Darnell is poisonous. It's poisonous. Not the seed itself, but there's a fungus we have come to learn. Scientists tell us now there is a fungus that, uh, that typically attaches itself to this plant and it is the fungus that is poisonous. And this poisonous fungus uh, pollutes the grain and makes the grain dangerous to eat for both man and livestock. It can be even fatal. Not always, but it can be fatal. Now, because there's a, there's a similarities here in, in every aspect that you can't tell them apart and, until you get to the, to the harvest time... Uh, you, you, you need to, um, to be aware of that as a farmer. And uh, because if it, pollu- if it gets in there, it, it will pollute your wheat crop. The other thing that we, uh, we know from, uh, from reading those that, that uh, speak of these things is that in those days, people would seek to uh, destroy a person's wheat crop by intentionally planting darnel among the wheat. In fact, there, was, there's a, there was, a, was a Roman law that made it a crime to do this. It was, actually a, it was actually a crime in those days to plant darnel among your neighbor's wheat. Okay, So I guess if you were really angry with your neighbor, you could go in there and you could plant some darnel and you could really mess him up. Okay, And so it happened commonly enough that it was against the law. There were regulations against doing this sort of thing. So the whole story here is very, very familiar. 
The kingdom of heaven, verse 24, may be compared to the scenario of a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares or darnel among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? How did that happen? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? Do you you want us to try to separate them out? And he said, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. That is, their root systems are going to be intertwined in the soil. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. He who has ears to hear, listen. And the crowd says, what do I do with that? What do I do with that? Now, let's make some observations as we kind of work work this thing through. Just obvious things that are laying here. Now, the enemy who, who does this dirty work does it in secret, right? It's not something you go out in the daylight and do, right? The guy's plowing his, you know, sowing his field. It's not like you come along behind him with the handfuls of Darnell and scatter them into the, into the ground. It's, it's something done in secret. It's something done surreptitiously. It's done in such a way that it, that it will not be discovered until much later, until the, work, until the, the dirty deed has been done. Beyond that, we... Uh, we see here that the slaves don't know it's been done. They don't know the enemy has attacked the field until the wheat has grown and actually begun to fruit before they even know. Then the imposter wheat is made evident. So, so some time has to pass before it becomes obvious. Time is passing. The root system, as we say, here is, is, uh, has become intertwined in the soil, and so it's, it's too dangerous, too damaging to the wheat crop, and, and you, you can't separate it while they grow. You have to wait. When this has been done, the only thing you can do is wait. And so that's what has to happen here. At the time of the harvest, right, verse 30, he says, let them grow together till the harvest, and then in that time he'll say to the reapers, First, gather the tares and bundles and destroy them and so forth. So what would happen is the reapers would go through the fields. They would cut the grain, you know, cut the standing grain down, which would include the darnel, and then it would be gathered in, and then the stalks would be separated. It would be obvious. You have the brown uh, grain of the wheat. You have the black of the darnel. You can do the separating. And so they would be separated. They would separate out the darnel. They'd gather it together. They'd you know, wrap it around in a bundle and they'd carry it off and they'd burn it. They want to completely destroy it. You don't want to leave any of that seed left around because you don't want it in your field again. So it has to be completely destroyed. Then the remaining wheat would be threshed and, and taken into the barn. Just common knowledge. Common knowledge. 
So what do you do with it? What do you do with this knowledge? Well, there's nothing you can do with it other than ask, Jesus, what do you mean by all of this? What's the point of the story? And that takes us to his explanation. He explains it to them, and boy, am I glad he did. Boy, am I glad he did. Verse 36. Then he, that is Jesus, left the crowds and went into the house. Now, you remember from last week, we said that that the early parables were told while he was in a boat just offshore because the crowds were pressing him so much. So the, he dismisses the crowds with, uh, with this, you know, he who has ears to hear, listen, thanks for coming. I'm glad I was able to, to speak to you this morning. And the crowd is going, you didn't tell us anything we don't already know. But he shoes them away, he sends them away, and now he goes into his house again. And I, and I think it's, a, it's there in Capernaum, it's, it's his house and so he goes into his house there in Capernaum, and, and his disciples, they follow him, and now they privately begin to, to, to press him to explain these stories because they don't get them either. They don't know what the story about the soils means, and they don't know what the story about the tares means. So the first question they ask him is actually in verse 10, chapter 13. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? So let's just begin with, why are you doing this? And so he explains there, in what follows through verse 17, why he's talking to them in this rather odd way. Then they, uh, Jesus, from there, uh, leads into an explanation of the parable of the soils, verses 18 to, to 23. And then they ask him, in verse 36, to explain the parable of the tares. Since he's willing to explain the parable of the soils, perhaps he's willing to explain the parable of the tares. And so they ask him, privately, what's all this about, right? They came to him, verse 36, and they said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Now, it's interesting, I think, that that they refer to this parable as the parable of the tares and not the parable of the wheat, They don't say to him, tell us about the parable of the wheat. Please explain that to us. They don't even say, explain to us the parable of the wheat and the tares. Even though normally in your Bible, that's the the heading they'll have over this section. They focus in on the, the big idea, the main point, tares. Tell us, explain to us, what do you mean by this story about tares or or weeds sown among the wheat. And so Jesus obliges them, and he begins to explain it. Verse 37, and he said. And what follows is rather interesting because what follows here in the next few verses is, is that Jesus gives definition or interpretation to the various parts of this parable. So we don't have to guess what some of these parts mean. He, he lays it out for us. And he said, verse 37, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. So we know immediately who the sower is in the story, right? The sower is the Son of Man. Now that's a, that's a great reference, uh, the Son of Man, because it's Jesus' favorite self-designation. 
It's how he refers to himself most often as the Son of Man. In fact, uh, there are only a few places where others speak of him that way, but, but this is his favorite way of, of speaking of himself, referring to himself as the Son of Man, and it comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And so I'm going to turn you back there, page 891, if you're following along in a pew Bible. I'm going to turn you back to Daniel chapter 7, Verses 13 and 14. This is one of the visions of the prophet Daniel that he received 600 years before this time. Verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel has a vision. In fact, Daniel has a series of visions that are are recorded in the book of Daniel for us. And it's essentially the same message over and over again through a series of visions that speak about four world empires. The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. And and in in various ways, these these, uh, visions are given to him to speak of what is in store for the nation of Israel, that these world empires will dominate. And each one will fall to the succeeding one until finally there will be one empire that will crush them all. And in, the, and in the vision earlier in the book of Daniel of, the, of uh, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, you remember the gold and the silver and the, and the uh, bronze and the iron and then iron and clay. And then it's smashed by a stone, right, cut without hands that, that grows to be a mountain and it fills the whole earth. That is Messiah's kingdom. That is the kingdom that here in Daniel 7 he sees the vision of Messiah receiving. An eternal kingdom, a, com- a kingdom that will, that will rule over all the kingdoms of the earth. All the pretender kingdoms of the earth will fall before this one kingdom, which will never pass away and never be destroyed. And so Jesus takes to himself this title. This becomes the way he refers to himself. And he does it this way because it, it both reveals and conceals at the same time. People say Jesus never claimed to be Messiah. Oh, yes, he did. Every time he refers to himself as the Son of Man, that's exactly what he claims. Furthermore, every time he refers to himself as the Son of Man, he is claiming that he is deity, that he is one who comes to to the Ancient of Days as his equal to receive this kingdom. So back to Matthew 13. He says the one who sows the good seed is the Messiah of of Daniel chapter 7. The one who will receive a kingdom from the ancient of days, a kingdom that will destroy all the kingdoms in rebellion against God. He's the one who sows the seed. 
verse 38. And he says, the field is the world. Now, that's an interesting statement. He doesn't say the field is the church. He doesn't say the field is, the, is Messiah's kingdom. He says that the field is the world. In the world, this seed will be sown, he says. Now, if your eyes will we'll flip ahead a little bit, down here to verse 41, it says, The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they'll gather out of his kingdom all the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. So there it appears like he's talking about the kingdom, but in verse 38, he's talking about the world. So how is it the world, and then later he's talking about the kingdom? Well, the answer is that when, when Messiah's kingdom comes, when the, when the kingdom of the Son of Man comes, it will fill the world. And the two will become uh, um, identical to each other. But for now, it's the world. The field is the world. Beyond that, he identifies the seed. Right? And as for the good seed, he says, these are the sons of the kingdom. They are the sons of the kingdom. This is a change from the parable of the soils. In the parable of the soils, it was the message of the kingdom. Now it's the sons of the kingdom. It is, it is people. It is those who are followers of Messiah, those who will inherit his kingdom when it comes. They are the sons of the kingdom, and they are the seed that is sown. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. These are those who are, who are following the evil one, and later we come to understand that evil one to be uh, the devil, verse 39. They are the sons of the devil. These are those who are followers of the devil. Now, they may not know it, but that's what they are. They are those who are living in opposition to Messiah and his kingdom. And they are hiding among the actual followers of Messiah. So you have, you know, you've got to get it in your mind here. In the world, there are the followers of Messiah, Jesus is saying, and there are the, the followers of the devil who are in opposition to Messiah, and, and they are mingled together in the world. Now, an illustration, I think, a, a historical illustration of what Jesus is talking about here speaks of the Pharisees. In John chapter 8 and verse 44, Jesus identifies the Pharisees that you are of your father, who? The devil. They're claiming to be of their father Abraham, and thus they would have been a, you know, one looking for Messiah. And Jesus says, you may appear to be followers of Abraham. You may appear to be looking for Messiah, but in reality, you are, your, you are of your father, the, the devil, because you refuse to acknowledge me as Messiah. You are, you are sown around, and, it, and you, are, you are polluting the crop. The one who sows them, verse 39, is the devil. He tells us that. I guess we don't need to say any more there. And the harvest, verse 39, is the end of the age. The harvest is the end of the age. Now, this is a, the end of the age is a, is a reference to the, to the judgment that will come prior to the establishment of Messiah's kingdom. 
Before Messiah's kingdom will come, there will be a judgment at the end of the age. What that means is that that the time period that Jesus is talking about is the time period from the time he speaks the parable all the way up to our day and beyond until Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom here on earth. Right? We refer to that as the second coming. So this parable encompasses the age and day in which you and I are presently living. And the reapers are angels. The reapers are the angels. They are the agents of the Son of Man, whereby he will bring fearful judgment upon these sons of the evil one. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul speaks of these same things. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. Paul talks in the middle of the verse, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among those all, among all those who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. So Paul says there is a time coming when Jesus returns in which his angels will bring about a fearful judgment upon all the deceivers, all those who have refused Messiah. Verse 41. And the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, all those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, pay attention. Verse 43, where it says the righteous will shine forth as the sun, is a reference to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3, where Daniel speaks of a future resurrection. First of the righteous, and then of the wicked. Daniel 12.3 doesn't tell us that actually a thousand years will separate those two resurrections. We have to go to Revelation 20 to get that information. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's revealing some important new information to them. So what is this new information? What what have they learned from this parable? What do they learn? Well, the first thing they learn is that the kingdom is not going to come immediately. Up until now, right, the message has been repent for the kingdom of heaven is where? At hand. No more. What they learn now is that there's going to be a a period of growing before the harvest. It's not revealed how long that period of growing will be. We're still in it. The harvest hasn't come yet. The wheat and the tares are continuing to grow side by side. The harvest has not yet come. 
Beyond that, they, they learn that the, that the sons of the kingdom will be sown into the world. This is new for them. And what it indicates is, is that Jesus' mission is going to expand beyond the nation of Israel. Right Back in chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, Jesus sends out the, the 12 and he instructs them. He says, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter the city of the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The message is narrow and confined. The message that repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is a narrow message for the nation. But because the nation has refused it, is in the process of refusing it, the message is now going to go wide. So you get to the end of the book of Matthew, to chapter 28, and verses 19 and and 20, and you read, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, right? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you even, always even to the end of the age. So the disciples now learn. Now, they don't get this perfectly. You know, it's not like one message and they got it all down. Now, and they're not too different from you and I, right? One sermon doesn't do it for me and it doesn't do it for you. So they're going to need to hear this repeated over and over and over again. But this is, this is brand new for them. Brand new information here. And that is that the harvest is not at hand. There's going to be a growing time. And it's an, it's an indeterminate growing time. Beyond that, no longer is their focus going to be exclusively the nation of Israel. Their focus now is going to be the world. The message... What the previously was that wrath is close at hand. Right? Chapter 3, verse 7. John the Baptist is, is preaching there, and, and he says, when, when he saw many of the Pharisees, Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to you, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come. Verse 10, the axe is already at the root of the tree. Right? Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will, he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He'll gather his wheat into his barn. He'll burn up his chaff with unquenchable fire. Same ideas. But the, but the, but the, the understanding you would get from chapter 3 is this thing is right around the corner. It's going to happen anytime. The kingdom is close at hand. Now, instead, the message is there's going to be a growing period in which they're going to live side by side. There's a side by side period. The kingdom has been postponed. Okay? That is brand new, mind boggling, spiritually stretching information. For us, yeah, maybe it's kind of ho-hum. Of course the kingdom was postponed, right? We're, we're in the postponement period. We've, we can look back 2,000 years. No big deal. But for them, this is, this is brand new stuff. Absolutely brand new stuff. How long will it be postponed for? No one knows. No one knows. We still live in the postponement period. All right. That's the historical side of it all. What do we do with it? 
What does it mean to us? I think there are, I think there are a number of lessons that we can learn. Number of, a number of lessons that are, that are important for us. So the first one, I think, is this. Uh, wherever sons of the kingdom are planted, it won't be long before Satan's counterfeits are also planted. Just think about that. Wherever sons of the kingdom, believers is the terminology we would use today, wherever they are being planted, counterfeits are being planted at the same time. There is active spiritual opposition to the work of the gospel. And, it, and, it's, and it's beyond just the hardness of the human heart. It cannot be explained in terms of psychology. There is a, there is a spiritual component. There is a, there is a real personal being who is evil and is seeking actively to destroy the work of God. Now, that's not particularly popular in certain quarters, but it's a reality. We should expect it to be so. We should expect it. Not cynically. We shouldn't become cynical about it and say, well, you know, let's start looking around in here and trying to figure out, okay, who, which of you are the tares, right? That's not the point. In fact, Jesus will speak directly to that. But I think what it, what it means is, is that we need, to, we need to pray. This is a spiritual endeavor. And, and we can do a lot of things right at the, at, the, at the human level. But ultimately, this is a spiritual endeavor. This is a spiritual war, and it is fought in, in the only means that God has given us, which is a, His Spirit and the Word. And we access His power through prayer. So let me ask you a question. When is the last time you prayed for Summit Bible Church? Do you remember them? Those were the folks we sent out three years ago to, to plant a church, right? To, to plant sons of the kingdom in Fontana. So when we sent them out to do that, what do you think the evil one was doing? He certainly wasn't conceding the ground and saying, oh, you want to you establish you know, a, a gospel presence in, in North Fontana? Of course. Been waiting for you. You know, have that. Have at it. I don't care about that anymore. No, exactly the opposite. He, he is actively working to destroy the work of the gospel in that community and through that church plan. And so we need to pray. We need to pray. Second lesson. When the, when the, uh, when the workers say, do you want us to, to go and, you know, and, and Get rid of these tares. The, the owner of the field says, no, don't do that. Because if you do that, you, you run the risk of destroying the wheat harvest with them, the wheat crop with them. You need to wait. You need to wait. And so what that, I think what that means to us is, is that any attempt to, to purge counterfeits within the, within the visible people of God has to be resisted. It has to be resisted. And the reason it has to be resisted is because it's likely to cause extensive damage to the, to the believers. Do 
Church history is replete with illustrations of, of zealous reformers who were seeking to purify the church by rooting out all the unbelievers. And there was no end of damage that was done and has been done by that kind of an idea. Jesus directly tells him, no, wait, wait. Now, it may come to your mind, uh, well, what about the whole church discipline thing? Well, how does that fit in? Well, it fits in this way. And Jesus speaks of church discipline in, in the same gospel, right? A few chapters later, Matthew 18. So how does it fit together? Well, it fits together by a proper understanding of, of what is being taught in the church dis- what's commonly called the church discipline passage. The, the, the purpose of church discipline is to restore the, the erring brother. It is not to, to kick people out of the visible church. It is when a brother or a sister, by their persistent refusal to repent of their sin, in, in essentially excludes themselves from the body. So we need to resist these temptations to look around and try to figure out who is of the evil one and let's get rid of them. That takes me to my third lesson and my third lesson is patience. We must be patient with people. We have to be patient with people and the reason we have to be patient with people is because We can't tell who are the wheat and who are the tares. We just don't know. They're growing side by side. Jesus will make the final determination. It is not ours to make. Patience. Now, patience with people, I think, is one of the most difficult tasks there is, right? It is exceedingly hard. We have to remember something. The Holy Spirit doesn't work on the same timetable and in the same way with each and every individual, right? You know, it's like you've heard this. God doesn't have a cookie cutter, you know, banging them out. You know, like Model T Ford, you can have any color you want as long as it's black, right? So God does not work that way. The Spirit of God, using the Word of God, is at work in His people, and people progress at different rates of speed, and they deal with different areas of their lives than you or I. And so we need to give a lot of grace in the process. A lot of grace. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll turn you there, page 1142. By the way, you heard me say this a couple weeks ago, and I just become, the more I study this, the more persuaded I become that when the Apostle Paul went out on his missionary journeys, that he had the scroll of Matthew rolled up and under his arm. I just see it over and over again, these principles that Jesus taught that are, that are revealed here in Matthew. I see Paul teaching them. So here in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, Paul's uh, talking about the whole problem there in the church of Corinth, which is that they're judging one another. I mean, one of many problems they have. But, but they're, you know, they're all they're, they're judging each other in, in, within the church. And in verse 5, just check this out. He says, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now what does that sound like? 
That sounds exactly like his explanation of what we commonly call the wheat and the tares, right? So, so don't, before the time, attempt to do what is only God's business to do. And it's tempting. It's tempting to take the area where I'm strong, strong, right? And then use that to, to, to evaluate all your weaknesses, and say, why can't you be more spiritual like me? Right? Well, thank God everybody's not like me. Or we would be in serious trouble. But it's, oh, it's so tempting. So tempting. And we are, we are so blind to our own failures. So blind. Okay? So patience. Patience, I think, is a very, very important lesson for us. To be patient. Fourth, Jesus will perfectly clean up the world at his, his second advent, right? When he comes through the agency of the angels, he will clear it all up, clean it all up. He will bring about the righteousness, the justice that you and I long for. Before that time and until that time, the world will be marked by lawlessness It will be marked by opportunity for the righteous to stumble. Jesus talks about these things here in in, um, verse 41, right? The stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. That is going to be what, what characterizes the world in which we live. And what that is significant, I think, is because if if we're trying to to get paradise here on earth, we're, we're going to be continually frustrated. And we're going to go frustrated, and we're going to get angry. It should not surprise us that wickedness is in high places, and that it, that it rains, and that God's people don't get a fair shake, and that people are willing to believe the worst slanders about us with little or no evidence. Right? There was a whole big thing, I don't, you know, some of you I'm sure are aware, about a waitress who supposedly got stiffed on a tip and so forth, right? Entire fabrication. But quickly, many people were, were very quick to believe that. Yet if that, if that had been you know, an atheist, and you know, nobody would care. But because it was a Christian that supposedly did this evil, dastardly deed of not tipping a waitress because of her lifestyle, it, it runs all over the newsways. It shouldn't surprise us. That's the world we live in. And it's going to be that way. And it's going to be that way until Messiah returns. Therefore, we should be looking for and praying towards what? The return of the king. Our greatest hope is to be in the return of the king. Nowhere else. Nowhere else. Fifth. The fate of those who refuse Jesus as Messiah, those who prove themselves to be sons of the evil one, right? Is ghastly indeed. Verse 42, they'll be thrown into the furnace of fire, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
What is the fate of those who refuse Jesus? It is a, it is a terrible, terrible fate. And that should sober us. It should sober us. We, we should not be quick to consign people to the fire. It's an awful thing. Awful thing. Finally, six. We kind of hit on this a little, but it's only when the wicked have been removed then the righteous will shine like the sun. Verse 43. Only then. Not before. Not before. We live in this world as aliens. We live in this world as strangers. We live in this world as those who will be oppressed. Because after all, if they called the head of the house Beelzebub, what do you expect for his servants, right? Do you expect a better treatment than that? Let's become um, spiritually clear-eyed in all of this, right? Let's understand the world in which we live. Let's have compassion on those who are without Christ. The gospel is their only hope. Jesus offers himself to all who will receive him by faith. And that includes... You this morning. You are here and, and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have not trusted in, in His death, burial, and resurrection to, to pay the penalty for the wrath of God that is rightfully yours because you have sinned against Him. You have broken His law in both thought, word, and deed. Eternal condemnation is what awaits you, and yet God in His great mercy and love has has given His own Son to stand in your place. And you receive Him by faith. Today can be your day. Call out to Jesus to save you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and And thank you because it gives us an ability to understand the times. All around us, people are confused. They're unsettled. They're anxious, fearful. They run to and fro, seeking to dull the pain. Seeking to avoid the the sense of the divine judge. And our Father, we can, we can penetrate the darkness here. We know what's going on, not, not down to the individual cases, clearly. But you have given us what you want us to know, and you have revealed the future to us. We, we know the days in which we live. We understand the times in which we find ourselves. And we are not without hope. So, Lord, may you use this message this morning to just renew our confidence in the Word of God and, and our commitment to engage in the, in the spiritual warfare that rages all around us. Help us to pray. 
Help us to minister the word carefully, like a skillful surgeon. We will trust that you are doing what you want done. That the harvest will come on your timetable and no one else's. But we long for the return of Christ. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.